You're listening to the Washington Hospitality Industry Podcast, your primary source of information related to the hospitality industry in Washington State. Hello and welcome to the Northwest Hospitality Leadership Podcast. Today's broadcast is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Click the link below to learn about payment solutions from U.S. Bank. Thank you for sponsoring this podcast. This month, Washington Hospitality Association President and CEO Anthony Antone, Barbara Sidway from the Geyser Grand Hotel in Baker City, Oregon, and Donna Moody from Marjorie Restaurant in Seattle, discuss the five dysfunctions of a team with Chris Jensen of Table Group. We hope you enjoy. So excited to, uh, to have Chris with us back from the Table Group. Chris, good to have you here today. And, uh, and we are really going to have two great guests with us today. We got uh, Donna Moody with Marjorie Restaurant in Seattle. Um, Thanks for sites, having me. Oh, we're so excited to have you here. Several sites have marked you as a five-star place and one of the go-to places in Seattle. But beyond that, when my team said, hey, I, I'm looking for kind of a great innovative leader and someone who will help the industry, and they're like, have you talked to Donna? And so you get to be here with us today. So uh, our team's a big fan of you and, and, and been working with you. And so thanks for joining us. Uh, equally excited to have Barbara Sidway from the Geyser Grand Hotel in Baker City. Barbara, welcome. Thank you. If you're not familiar with the Geyser Grand, because you maybe haven't been through Baker City, you got to make it on one of your trips. Um, it's been rated by Sunset Magazine as one of the top hotels uh, on the West Coast between Salt Lake and Seattle. And it's just, it's such a cool place. And uh, when I talked to my counterpart in Oregon about um, great leaders and and from lodging and otherwise, he's like, you need to talk to Barbara. And so that you could join us again. I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you're here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, this is my go-to. So my team is gonna tease me. Today, we're talking about five dysfunctions of a team. This is the book that started it all for me and really becoming passionate about leadership. It's the one that broke me from stubborn and thinking I knew it all to saying, I got to start over and learn. And uh, way before I read the other of Patrick Lencioni's books or got to meet Chris or even started talking about it. So I just read this book and I, I suddenly had a bunch of aha moments of, of some work I needed to do as a leader and actually began uh, talking to the book with my team and it became part of our core values. Chris, while I could talk obnoxiously about it, I think most of our listeners will probably be new to the book. Can you can you give us the overview of five dysfunctions of a team and, and why it's so important in, in today's business world? Absolutely. <clears throat> Teamwork is, uh, it's not rocket science or complicated, uh, but it is hard work. And the reason why it's more, it's becoming increasingly important is at the rate at which things are changing and you know the last two years have just accentuated this as as things are changing and as information is becoming so accessible the ability to win on pure intellect or strategy in is becoming less and less a competitive advantage and so one of the reasons why a lot of organizations are looking inward to how well are people working together is because we, we, you know, at the table group, we say you can no longer outsmart your competitors because as soon as you think of something, it takes 10 seconds for the internet to find it and for competitors to be able to copy it. And so really our competitive advantage is in how well we actually can 
work together as a group of people to achieve whatever the objectives of the organization are. The five dysfunctions of a team is really about the five critical behaviors that build high-performing, well-functioning, fulfilling teams. Um, the first behavior is we need to have high trust. The absence of trust is a, is a fundamental dysfunction. And really what we mean by trust is the ability for team members to quickly admit their mistakes, not be defensive at work um, and around their peers, be able to recognize when somebody they work with is smarter than them and can really have valuable input into their work. So the willingness for team members to be, um, we, we use the word vulnerable, which nowadays is a much more common common word than it was when we when the book was written. But that's really what we mean by trust, not not the not reliability, which is what a lot of people think of when they think of trust. That's important too. But we're, we're, we're talking about the ability to be unguarded with each other as a foundation for a great, a well, a, a really effective team. When we have trust that enables us to do the second thing, which is be able to engage in effective, productive conflict. The avoidance of conflict leads to teams not dealing with all the information. When people hold back and aren't honest, even when it's uncomfortable, teams and organizations deal with inaccurate or insufficient information. And so when we adopt a mentality that let's, on the basis of high trust relationships, let's be totally candid, even to the point of discomfort. Now an organization is dealing with all of the information because now we're not holding back from each other. And so when we do that with humility and respect of our peers, that leads to organizations making better decisions. And we always talk about how conflict with, with people you trust is about the pursuit of truth, the pursuit of the best idea. And often what people are afraid of is really conflict without trust, which is what turns into competition or politics and positioning, which is definitely unproductive. But conflict with people who have high trust is very productive. And without conflict, we have a hard time doing the third behavior, which is commitment. And commitment isn't necessarily about loyalty to the organization. It's the willingness to let go of disagreement and commit to decisions we make, even if I initially disagree. It's one thing for us to make a decision I agree with. I will really support that. But in a, in a high functioning team, when you as the leader make a decision I initially disagreed with, I need to be willing to let go of disagreement and wholeheartedly commit to that decision um, and, and do my part to make sure it succeeds. That's what commitment is about. It's, we, we always steal from the, uh, the intel, disagree and commit. And, and that's an important, important behavior in the context of team. And commitment and buy-in is important because without it, we can't do the fourth behavior, which is accountability. And accountability is one of the most difficult behaviors in any context. When we work with teams, we talk about peer-to-peer -peer accountability being superior than manager-centric accountability. You need managers to be the ultimate source of accountability. But in a high-performing team, your first point of accountability is peer-to-peer. -peer. But we avoid peer-to-peer -peer accountability, one, because it's uncomfortable, and two, because oftentimes I lack clarity that it's an expectation in the organization. And so in a high-performing team, you look at any sport team or any well-functioning team, you will see people are holding one another accountable, not in a punitive way to catch people doing something wrong and throw them under the bus, but out of a desire to help each other be successful. So if I'm doing something that's hurting myself or the team, when you call me out as a desire to help me get better, that's a great team.
And of course, accountability is important because it's what enables us to really achieve the collective result we're after. And one of the fundamental dysfunctions in a team that undermines teams is people are more focused on their own status or image or priorities than the collective result of the team. And so that the top of the five dysfunction of a team pyramid is a commitment to focus on the collective good over and above my individual um, interests. And so the willingness that I have to make sacrifices for the good of the organization or the team is a critical component of teamwork. Now, of course, that requires at the very bottom of the pyramid that we have high trust so that I don't feel like I'm being taken advantage of. And so those five behaviors are critical to a team being effective. The absence of any one of them lead to a team being ineffective and ultimately an organization underperforming. And so this one behavior, teamwork, is a strategic decision that organizations make in order to, one, have a competitive organization, but also in today's environment, have a culture within the organization that's more attractive and desirable to employees. Employees want to be in an environment where they don't have to pretend, they can be honest, um, and, and they're desired for the, for the good of the organization. And so when leaders create that environment, it's good for the business, and it's great for the employees. People love being in a, in a well-functioning team. That's kind of in a nutshell what's in that book. And, and, I, and I fell in love with it and for a lot of those reasons, I think. Uh, uh, but, you know, Donna, what about you? Do you, you? I don't know if you'd read that chance to read this book before. When you read it, well, give us your first, your first impressions. What, what, uh, so I'm, uh, I can't help but be anything but candid. So I will share that at first when I got the assignment, I was like, oh my God, more reading, something else to do. And I took it with me on a trip that I made and I found myself unable to put it down even when the plane landed. And I was really surprised because I wasn't expecting it to be several things, not quite as helpful as it was and not quite as kind of in some ways obvious, but um, obvious in ways that I think it's easy not to focus on the components that are so important to team building. Right. And um, late as of late, I've been working a lot on just kind of trust building to be the foundation of doing work. And especially um, these days, a big thing that comes up is doing uh, trust building in terms of racial equity and how important it is to not move forward with programs or plans or implementations until that base level of trust is built because you really can't do anything else. So I, I was not, I mean, I was kind of surprised how, yeah. how important it was and how much I read it with, with kind of a look, excitement and speed. Oh, well, that, you I actually read do. it. You actually read it in the context we wrote it, which was, if we can write a book that a leader can pick up and bring onto an airplane with them and fly across the country and be close to being done and got something out of it, that's the ideal context. So that's great to hear that. That's a win. That's a win. That's great. <laughs> Barbara, how about you? What was your, what, what would, yeah, I don't know if you'd had read it before. Um, no. Uh, what'd you, what'd you think? No. Well, well, and it was a great, it was a quick read. It was a page turner. It was fun. I read it in the evening when my husband was elsewhere and, um, it was great. I think, uh, well, there were lots of great things in it, but one thing that I, I think I actually laughed out loud and alone in my living room when, uh, I forget what the exact quote is, but she, she said, oh, this organization is political. You're acting political. And they're like, oh no, we're not. Uh, and they asked her, 
she defined po political behavior as, I think it was um, words or actions designed to provoke or to um, make a statement rather than be communicative. So what, what was the thing there, Chris? It was great. The, you'll have to remind me what the, what the context was in the, uh, what part of the story? It was one of the retreats and, and, and she said that she sort of blurted out, um, didn't mean, didn't mean to blurt it out, but did anyhow, this is a political organization. And they uh -oh. all pushed back and said, no, we're not either. Oh. And, and she, and then someone said, well, what is political behavior? And Changing she said, what this, you say based on who's in the room. Right. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, okay. That, that is a great, that's a great definition. One that I hadn't heard before. Totally accurate. See it every right. day. <laughs> Yeah, it's they, a they real don't think thing. they're political until they see it in front of them and like, oh, well, oh, maybe we are. That was me. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in politics, we talk about uh, as being on a continuum. We often think of it in in the personal agenda and trying to manipulate relationships to get what you want out of the organization. And that's certainly on the on the spectrum of politics. But there's also I'm young. I'm new to the organization. I don't want to be disruptive and even though they might be thinking things that would really help the organization, they hold back. And we would say that's also a form of politics, although mm -hmm. on the nice side of politics, where you're altering your point of view and what you're sharing based on who's in the room. And mm -hmm. we want an organization where whether you're new or experienced, you feel free to contribute openly and you're humble in regards to your contributions when we choose not to go your way. And that kind of environment is both high performing and fulfilling to work in and, and extraordinarily dignifying to all the people in the organization, which is what a, mm -hmm. a healthy organization will ultimately be. Mm -hmm. Well, honestly, I've, I've actually taught to this book in, in different groups. And I know that um, if we try to go through all five functions, we wouldn't be able to get it done in a half hour podcast. So let's focus on one of them. And, and I think one of the ones I'd like to take today is, is conflict, particularly with all the stuff we've been through in the past few years and new generations who maybe aren't used to conflict or used to reward or used to things differently. And yet we know if, um, if the front desk can't tell housekeeping that uh, we're getting complaints about the rooms not being cleaned, in a way that they can hear or specifically what that means or if um the hostess is hearing things on the on the walkout about customers saying man the food was cold or i'm really disappointed and that doesn't get passed on we can't get better so we have to be able to talk about these things and yet it's not the easiest thing to do um and so uh let, let's stick with the average parts of our team we'll have people in our teams who do it great and people our teams who are growing but when you're just trying to get to the kind of the middle of your team going on conflict and, and encouraging conflict, um, uh, Barbara, do you have any um, ways that you try to encourage people to be honest with each other and get the issues out there so you can start improving? Uh, yes, we, we <laughs> I guess that that's, you know, it's a struggle because um, so many people are, colored by their own personal situations that they aren't um, even able to accurately reveal what they're hearing mm. in a in a clean fashion it gets colored by um, their judgment of the guests you know some for example some some staff can be 
judgmental, like, oh, he's a jerk. So everything he's about to say, I'm not going to take seriously. And when you're working with small businesses who, who, uh, who need to get this going from some point, they'll improve, they'll make tweaks. Mm-hmm. Where's good starting points to start getting conflict on the table so we can start making the improvements we need? Right. Well, you know, I think the first the first thing is um, you have to you have to have a high trust organization. Conflict without trust is going to break an organization. And so you have to make sure you've already made that investment in trust. And, you know, one of the things I always remind leaders when I'm working with them is think about the people you feel the most free to be honest with. Typically, it's your highest trusted relationships. And, um, you know, I I'll, I'll reference you know, my, my wife I've known since I was 12 and we've been married for over 20 years. And when we were dating uh, in California, you know, one of the reasons I fell in love with her is she loved to go to the same taqueria I always went to. And every date she'd want to go to taqueria with me and Mexican. I, I was under the impression Mexican food was both of our shared favorite foods. And we were on our honeymoon in California the first night. And I said, Oh, let's go to, let's go find a Mexican restaurant in this area. And she said, well, I don't really like Mexican food. It's the same ingredients and different size tortillas. And I was shocked. I thought I just married you. this yesterday, <laughs> And now I'm stuck for the rest of my life. Um, but I, I share that story tongue in cheek, but it's an example of as our relationship, uh, trust increased it and we cro- increased and we crossed that line. Um, her ability to be just more honest increased and so did mine and this is this is only grown in our relationship and this is true in any relationship when you have high trust our ability to be honest without having to manage it actually gets better and we get better at it over time so i just i throw that out there not to deep dive on trust although that would be an interesting another conversation for us to have in the future but it is important to call out that if we're going to work on conflict we must have already done some work on trust or we'll break it Mm -hmm. the other thing is i would say the first thing we have to understand is our different styles of conflict. And this is, and Barbara, you mentioned that some people are good at it or some people are not, or, or maybe Anton, that was you, but understanding our different styles so that we don't fall into misattribution of intent of each other is really important. I come from, in my family, I've got on my mom's side is all Italians. They're, you know, I always refer to them as my chain smoking, alcoholic, immigrant <laughs> Italian family. They are real Italians. And my dad's <laughs> side is all Norwegian. And the way those two families handle conflict is polar opposite. My one of my first roommates in college was from New York. And Donna, I think you're uh, you're in New York right now. The first night we hung out, he was sarcastic and joked and made fun of me all night long. I went back to our dorm offended because I was from Oakland, California, where, hey, you respect me, I'll respect you. And that's how we do things in California. And I came back thinking I need to find a new roommate. He came back to the dorm thinking we spent all night bonding. And this is so when you talk about conflict, it's important for us to we need to actually understand and appreciate our differences, because if I require you to communicate like I do, we're never going to be able to have good conflict. So I don't need you to tone down for me because your volume or emotion makes me uncomfortable. I need to know you well enough to give you permission to 
engage with me without me jumping to con false conclusions about you. And so the starting point after trust is we need to get to understand each other's conflict styles and appreciate them, not manage to the bland middle. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. You know, what do you uh, think, yeah, I was going to say, say, I really appreciate that. And I think as long as that kind of mutual sense of understanding comes from a place of respect so that, you know, there's like kind of uh, some rules that we follow for even if you're fiery or even if you're sedate, that there's always a sense that um, communication is happening in a really respectful way. And I mm -hmm. think I just heard so many things that, um, you know, it's kind of funny that executive leadership, we have a very small team because I have a smaller restaurant. But what has happened to me over the pandemic is I've entrusted a lot of our staff with a lot more responsibility and also have kind of made myself more of um, a person that's there, but not doing the hands-on management so that my staff was able to work during the pandemic. And one of the things I noticed is we had to have a lot of trust to make that work. So that mm -hmm. foundation was pretty well there, but still needed to be built. And it makes conflict a lot easier to handle and it makes it a lot easier for us all to be direct with each other. So I feel like right. we're kind of building that. Um, and it's kind of funny, it weeded out the people, the pandemic in a way weeded out people that weren't interested in making that kind of commitment or showing up in that way. So this really okay. lines up with so many things in my life, not just the restaurant, but also other work that I do. Hmm. That's awesome. Donna, when you, when you're finding someone in your restaurant, you're like, this person could be great, right? There's the, the, your team member who's not your, that you're developing them and you know that they have good thoughts inside, but they're holding back on conflict for, for whatever reason. How do you uh, put your arm around them or encourage them or say, I know you're brilliant, get it out so we can figure out the problem and get better. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and do that one-on-one -on -one coaching with someone you really believe in, but you, they're just not letting loose yet. I, I love that question because one of the kind of guiding principles that I use in the restaurant is when people come to me and complain about another staff person, I am always listening and I hear it. And then I always end with, let's go talk to that person. And it would actually be better if it came from you because- if we don't do that, then we're talking about them behind their back. And that's not really an atmosphere I want to create here. So what I'd love for you to do is approach this person, have the conversation, and then I'm happy to step in maybe as a mediator and not as the conveyor of this, you know, conversation that you want to have so mm -hmm. that we've already set it up so you can be comfortable to, to make that, you know, complaint to someone or grow for yourself. You know, if it's someone that needs something to grow, they have all the tools and then they have the support to kind of maybe branch out into something they're not super comfortable with. So they know that if they go and talk to, you know, person A and it doesn't go well, that I'm going to come in and say, hey, let's let's try to re have that conversation and let's look at it from both sides. So there's someone there that's kind of neutral mm -hmm. and the conversation can be kind of facilitated but they've also learned that they can take the initiative to voice a complaint or to rise themselves up a little bit without always having to be coached to do it. I love that. One of the things I love about what you just said, Donna, is one of the mistakes I think leaders make is wanting to 
push conflict down in the organization. Like, hey, just get over it or don't talk to me. You know, either go deal with them directly. Don't bring things to me. Conflict always exists in an organization. And if leaders can teach their people how to channel it, then what never then what happens is it doesn't fester and ferment in the organization. Because if if leaders don't do what you just said you do, which is, hey, I'm going to listen and I'm going to let you complain and engage, like, let's do the conflict and then we're going to channel it in a productive way. People need, that's what leaders are there for. People need leaders to help them understand what to do with it. If they don't, it ferments, festers, and then explodes. And then you'll have that employee who either didn't feel safe or was told not to say anything, or maybe their own insecurities or, you know, whatever their mental state, they were withholding it, didn't know there was permission. And then it turns into a disaster in, you know, worst case in front of customers. And, and we've all seen that in our careers. It's totally unproductive conflict, but that's a symptom that things weren't said earlier and quicker and channeled productively. And that's a critical role the leaders play in conflict is create an environment where it's expected to say things early on and before it's turned into heat, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I love that. Barbara, as you're listening to that exchange, anything that came out for you as an example of something you experienced in the hotel or when you're trying to coach that team member, you see it's got great personality, but it hasn't addressed conflict. Anything that made you think of? Well, I mean, I... I think actually, as, as we're talking about this, probably the most important part of the book is, is the trust. Um, we have lots of situations. We have people from different cultures here and different backgrounds. I mean, like wildly different. And mm -hmm. I think that uh, there is a lack of trust or understanding or misunderstanding and, uh, you know, prejudice. Um all around and that's really causing trouble with being able to communicate in that's a right. in an effective way right i mean they talk to each other it's fine right. they, it's no fisticuffs but honest uh exchange i think is far more lacking than it should be a lot of times what got a lot of our listeners to where they are being the owners and owning their own business is conflict was relatively easy for us a lot of times chefs whether it's good conflict or not, or other folks. I mean, I think about my dad's restaurants. So I was just looking at this. This is my, we were the mad Greeks. Literally conflict where it was in one of our restaurants. <laughs> it, all four of my grandparents are from Greece. We argued for breakfast. We didn't know we were arguing. We just thought we were talking. So <laughs> exactly. when I bring people in for our core values, right? And, and I talk about our five functions of a team, because I, you know, Chris, I put it in the positive. Uh, right. Uh, and I say, which of these five will you bring as a strength and which of these will you need the team to have your back? And inevitably mm -hmm. I'll go first because I want them to know that I, I've got a weakness too, right? And conflict's always my strength. For most people that I talk to in that, in that interview stage, they usually mention conflict is their weakness. Mm -hmm. And that's an area where they need teams to have their back. Chris, as, as strong leaders, and, and, and I've heard such great things about uh, Don and Barbara, I'm sure they're in a similar boat who conflict, we're just, how do we not steamroll people, but give them the space to learn? Where for me, I'm like, sweet, an argument, I'm in, this is fun. Conflict, mm -hmm. this is how we get better. And those who mm -hmm. are uncomfortable, be made like, you can feel them pulling back and you're like, you're not giving me space. How yeah. do we balance ourselves when it might come natural to us of where we're at now and we're trying to develop others? 
I would love to uh, divert to Donna and Barbara first, and then I'll go last, because I'm curious, Donna, how do you do it? And then maybe Barbara, how do you create that environment? And then I'll kind of share a final thought on that. Um, one of the things that I find really works for me is to create space to have the conflict. Mm -hmm. So when I feel it um, kind of creeping in, um, I definitely will say, you know, I see this is happening here. Maybe we're not going to deal with it today. Um, but why don't we make some time tomorrow so that we can talk this through? And I'll also kind of recap because that seems to really help people. Like what mm -hmm. I see happening here is, you know, the kitchen is feeling like they're not getting an equitable tip out. And the front of the house feels like they're working a little harder because they have to be, you know, face on game game day every day. And the kitchen gets mm -hmm. to sit on, you know, milk crates in the back and, and eat tacos while they're waiting <laughs> for the rush. And so why don't we think about that? And then I'll bring some facts and then we have the conversation. But just by giving everyone like a little cool down time and giving people the opportunity to come back with facts, I've really found that I see that argument turning into a conversation and working its way through the conflict. Like the kitchen is like, hey, but we're working really hard too. The front of the house is like, yeah, you are, but you know, you've got three people, I'm one person, that's why it's so distorted. Hey, is there a compromise we can make? Why don't we try this? And why don't we come back in two months and see how that feels salary-wise for everyone? Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of like we worked our way through it. And mm -hmm. there's that facilitator so that you're creating the space for trust, maintaining the trust, and also allowing people to feel like it might not be what their desired outcome is, but they were able to weigh in and they were heard. Awesome. I love that. Barbara? Yeah. yeah, that's great. I would say my my best success is basically, um, oh, maybe you, you might even call it flattery, where I said, you know, I want to know what you think because I value you in maybe mm -hmm. not so many words. And uh, I, I, if I, generally that there's no one else around. And so I don't have the, the lack of trust appearing because they pretty much all trust me. So I'm able to suss it out of them in that way. And then that I can take that and use that. That's not a functional team, is it? No, it's just one-on-one. -on -one. So mm -hmm. yeah, something to work on, but that's, that's how I'm able to get the information that I need. In I love that. My organization. Yeah. See, I think uh, I'm glad I asked the two of you because it, it proves that, uh, you know, what it takes to have conflict in your healthy conflict is, is not, you know, it's, it's common sense leadership in a good organization. And, uh, because I would have said what prevents us from having conflict. One is time, which is exactly what Donnie, you said, you got to make space. People need to recognize that a leader sees conflict as something we need to address and we're not going to avoid. And we're, and one of the reasons it's unproductive is because it just kind of happens in the wrong places. And if we don't make time for it to happen in the right places, that's, that's going to be a problem. Permission is a big important, Barbara, what, what you said about letting people know that you actually care about what they think and you want to hear their, their, their point of view. People need to know there's permission and expectation to be honest and that nothing's going to happen to them as a result. And one, and then I think framing was the word I was using. And you, you said, Donna, about uh, just kind of re-articulating what the situation is. 
people often lose perspective in conflict. And the role of a leader is to make sure we have perspective and a good framing on why we're even engaging in this discussion. And so why we won't do it is because there's not time. I don't feel permission and I'm getting lost in the de in all of the emotion or details. When a leader can make time, give permission and frame well, then conflict, when we've already made the investment in trust, can be very effective and productive. And I think, you know, as we're kind of ending, I'm thinking, if we don't do those things, conflict will emerge in very unproductive ways. When we as leaders do those three things in conflict and, and give a, create a productive outlet for it, the organization only gets better and it's only more fun to work there. And these days is we're all struggling with keeping people and attracting people, having a great place to work is matters now more than ever. And when people know they can be honest and they won't be penalized, even if it's uncomfortable, it's, it's a powerful force in retaining people. I, I love what all three of you said. I, I love these podcasts so much because I learned uh, so much from them. The, you know, we obviously work with a lot of organizations who are dealing with the emerging or the new demographic coming into the workforce. And I feel like I've been saying a lot to leaders in the last couple of years, you know, look, look to this incoming generation as raising your leadership bar, because while there may have been a generation uh, or, or an ability to be a manager several decades ago or a couple generations ago where you could tell people what to do without having a lot of relationship with them and they would just go with that. And, uh, and there's a lot of problems with that way of operating. And this new, I think the new environment we're in now is requiring leaders to be real leaders. And what I mean by that is they need, I'm the young generation is expecting leaders to build a relationship with them that, uh, should have boundaries, professional boundaries, but it, they're probably not going to be as easy to follow our lead just because you said so. You know, I was raised in a family where I regularly heard from my mother because I said so. <laughs> and I was told that was sufficient, but th that's no longer sufficient. And I think that means leaders need to be actually stronger leaders where they establish a rapport, establish a trust relationship and help people understand that um, I do care about your opinion. There's boundaries because it's not all about you. We have a team and there's a lot of different opinions here and all of us together, you know, will will come up with better ideas. So I want us all to share. And, um, and so it's important for us to respond to this generation with better leadership, not with criticism and judgment. You know, step up as leaders in our ability to be galvanizers and influencers of talent and people and uh and when we do that it only makes us better makes the organization stronger it's it's a good thing and it helps their career when they can see somebody who honors them builds a relationship with them and then gives them boundaries professional boundaries they thrive in that people want to be in that environment well chris i think you did a great job of bringing us back to the why and we know that people will be listening to this in their car and we want to honor your 30 minute drive time uh, and, and not have you to worry about catching the latter part of this later. So why we're doing these podcasts is we're going to be in a workforce scarcity for the next five years, at least. 
our competitive advantage moving forward is going to be the culture of our businesses and the leadership we can provide to our team. That's, that's going to be a differentiator. And we're bringing these ideas and concepts forward in this book forward. Uh, uh, Donna, with that in mind, five dysfunctions of a team. Um, what do you hope uh, the newer operator or the new person, someone listening to the podcast today takes away from our conversation to help them survive these next five years and, and how to make leadership and company culture a competitive advantage? What, did, what do you hope they take forward from this? I think my biggest takeaway and what I would want others to take away is the importance of uh, building trust because without that as the foundation, you can't really put the other components into place. And I think that was a big lesson from the book and just also a personal belief of mine. So the book really supported the importance of building trust in a work environment um, and with colleagues building trust to, to work together and to also maybe be able to spend time outside of work with each other. That's awesome. Barbara, same, same question. Bingo, trust. Yes. <laughs> that, 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 that's, I mean, it's the foundation of the pyramid in the book and that's mm -hmm. the foundation to move forward and uh, something I'm going to be working on. Chris, uh, bring it, bring it home for us. Uh, what, what do you hope that, that the listeners and people who haven't had a chance to read the book to take home today and, 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 uh, give us, give us the last thoughts for the day. Trust. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> trust is absolutely important I, as a, as it relates to specifically the conflict conversation. I think it's important to remember that conflict does exist. It's really about what we're going to do with it as leaders and we need to be able to channel it. And it's not one of the problems with conflict is not that conflict happens. It's that we haven't learned how to do the cycle of conflict, recover, conflict, recover. What's made my marriage stronger over the years, over these 20 years is not that we've minimized conflict is we've learned how to recover quickly. And so when conflict happens now, I'm not afraid it's going to break the marriage. Both of us realize we we've been here before. We know how we're going to get through this. And it usually ends with me just saying she's right. And that's usually works just great. Um, but it's the, it's that cycle. It's the same in the physical body. You know, how does a physical body get stronger? It's through resistance training, but it's the cycle of tearing the muscles and healing that process is critical. And so as leaders, we need to recognize conflict makes us stronger, not weaker, but it's the process of tearing and recovering. That's the, that's the benefit. And so when we learn to create an environment where people are free to kind of tear down ideas and then rebuild them with a shared commitment and emerge together. That's the advantage of conflict. Uh, avoidance of conflict leads to atrophy of an organization. And as leaders, we can't afford to do that, especially in today's environment over the next five years as things are becoming increasingly more and more challenging and competitive. And so embrace it, channel it, and learn how to recover. That cycle will produce a great organization. Well, I think that's a great way to bring it home. I, I can't thank the three of you enough for being on here today and sharing your insights on leadership. I can't wait to come see you in your own properties now that we're opening up mask-free and, and being able to enjoy each other's hospitality uh, moving forward is going to be uh, fantastic. So uh, thanks all for listening today. The three of you, thank you so much. Uh, Donna Moody from Marjorie Restaurants, uh, Barbara Sidway from uh, Geyser Grand Hotel, and Chris Jensen from The Table Group. Uh, thanks for helping us make the industry stronger. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Look for our next episode coming in May.
Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Washington Hospitality Industry Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, wahospitality.org, where you can learn more about the restaurant and lodging industries and the Washington Hospitality Association. Be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or iHeartRadio so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Thank you so much for that effort. Until next time.